And APB, American Protection Bureau, voted number one best on Long Island for all your security needs. Call 631-390-9050. That's 631-390-9050. APB. You need a body shop? You need engine repair? Auto Excellence. Collision Specialists. 631 631- Two six one six four two zero. That's six three one two six one six four two zero. Auto Excellence. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, even space mutants, to the very first edition of True Crime with the Bad Girl and the Player. My name is Benny Scala, aka aka the Player. And I am the co-host of the long-running Dan and Benny in the Ring podcast, as well as a weekly participant in um, on the This Week in Pro Wrestling and This Week in Pro Wrestling History podcast. And I am joined by my partner in crime, the Boston Bad Girl, the Siren of Situate, legendary professional wrestler Brittany Brown. Brittany, how are you? How are you doing? And uh, tell our listeners about your, your fascina- fascination with true crime. You have a very interesting story to share. I do, yes. So I'm doing well, and I hope you are too. Um, I My true crime fascination started when I was a young girl, and I was doing, I was in ninth grade, I was doing a book report for my news media class. Uh, it was actually a byline that I had to do. And everybody was doing like Andrew Jackson, George Washington, you know, people like that. And of course, Young Brittany Brown had to be different. And she wrote to Charles Manson after reading Helter Skelter. And she also called the prison a couple of times. Now, I will tell you, I did get grounded for that. Um, Two solid weeks when my father called the number on the phone bill and found out what it was. I'm sure it wasn't a local call either, right? No, it was not. No, it was a situate mass to... Uh, Folsom Prison in California. Oh, wow. Yep, yep. That didn't stop me from writing a second time. Um, And it also didn't stop me from calling a second time and getting grounded a second time. A second time. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the start of it. And then later on, when I got my own place, I have kind of a true crime room. I I buy memorabilia from certain um, true crime individuals like uh, Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. I have a whole room full of neat, neat stuff. So I could I could bore you with the details for hours, but I won't do that. Uh, it would not be boring to me. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, podcasting is very much like wrestling, and that, not, and we're both either wrestling fans or, in Brittany's case, she was a professional wrestler. In in wrestling, nothing gets over without a good storyline. And at True Crime with the Bad Girl and the Playa, we will be, and hopefully on a weekly basis, if we can, uh, if we can keep it up, selecting a controversial murder case from the past, analyzing said case, and then uh, offering our opinions on, on the historical outcome of the case if we agree with it or not. And we chose for our first case. Something very close to uh, to situate um, the uh, the case of the Boston Strangler, uh, none other none other than Albert Salvo. Now, 
if somebody mentioned the name Mark Calloway to the casual wrestling fan, a lot of people wouldn't know who that was. I mean, obviously it's The Undertaker, but the same with Mr. DeSalvo. If you asked a cross-section of Americans in the 1960s um, who Albert was, it's a safe bet. You get a lot of deer in the headlight looks, but um, mention the name Boston Strangle, and now you've got everybody's attention. So, Brittany, with all that being said, are you ready to apply a side headlock to the case of the Boston Strangler? Absolutely. This is fascinating, and I think the people are going to be psyched to hear all of this. I agree. Well, bad girl, as Gladys Knight would say, along with her pips, let's get right down to the nitty-gritty. I don't even know what the nitty-gritty is, but let's get down to it anyway. And uh, just one disclosure. Uh, neither the bad girl nor the player are trained in forensics, law, or psychology. We're just two diehard fans of true crime. And maybe I should find a different name than other than diehard. But and one other one other disclosure is that you know with Dan and Benny in the ring, we've done 145 episodes, and my partner Dan Sebastiano has recorded 145 episodes. I've recorded zero. So I don't know if you remember the uh, the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, the the science teacher, Mr. Vargas, he said, "I just switched to Sanka, so I have a heart." So I'm into, you must have seen that movie then, just by the way yeah. you left. So yeah. I'm asking everybody to have a heart. It's going to be like, you know, when you when you get on a plane, uh, there may be turbulence here. So I'm cautioning everybody in advance. Keep your seatbelt fastened. But I promise you it will be be worth the, the ride. So um, I guess I'll start with the early years. Albert DeSalvo mm -hmm. was born into a family of uh, had five siblings. I believe two sisters and three brothers and had a terribly abusive father. I mean, really this guy was a dirtbag. Yeah. Uh, beat Albert's mom in front of the kids actually brought hookers into the house and mm -hmm. threw his wife out of their bed. Now I'm, I'm a huge fan of hookers. You know, I like him as much as the next guy, but you know, you got to have some boundaries here. Right. Um, oh. Just my opinion, Brittany, but the, the Salvo should have made him the first victim. I, I totally agree. I mean, he was way more evil than anybody he ever, I mean, none of them were evil. That man was evil. That man did not deserve to breathe air, in my opinion. But no. at 12 years old, he gets sent to uh, reform school. I think it was called the Lyman School in Boston yep. for, uh, for theft and battery. I'm not even sure if that's even there anymore. Uh, got paroled a couple of years later, but uh, went right back after he stole a car. And, you know, Brittany... You study these these serial killers like a Bundy, uh, uh, a Manson, particularly a Manson, um, yeah. uh, Gary Ridgway, the uh, the Green River Killer. Yeah. Uh, all of these people had a horrible childhood. Yeah. I, the only one I could think of that even had a semi-normal childhood, uh, at least I think so. Not not as not as far as him, himself, but as far as his his family was um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. I, believe, I mean, I, I've, I've seen interviews with his mother and father. I mean, you know, they will never win a personality contest anywhere. Right. Uh, but I mean, they seem like they're normal folks. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 one is is quite interesting. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They these people seem to come from abusive, either physically or mentally or in this case, both, um, uh, you know, abusive homes, very strange 
situations. I mean, you know, just like with Manson, I mean, his mother was a hooker and had he had no father. So, I mean, my God. And then what this what this gentleman, well, I don't know if I want to call him a gentleman. Definitely use that one loosely, right? Yeah, let's not use that. This man, Albert DeSalvo, I mean, what he had to see as a child is absolutely awful. Um, but I certainly would hope that everybody that sees that isn't going to go do what he did. Right. I was going to say now, like, I believe it was uh, Bundy, if I'm not mistaken, he thought that his mother was his sister. Yes. Because his mother had him at a very early age and he was raised by the grandmother. Yep. And the sister that his mom lived with them. But that was always to him, his older sister. And imagine the shock when you find out that your sister is really your mother. Yeah, that's 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 shocking. I think I'd go out and eat a, you know, maybe a small pizza and a couple of diet Pepsis or something. But I don't think I'd go around killing people. I was going to say, you know, I might I might indulge myself. I might even, you know, have a, a bottle of wine, maybe even two. But like, yeah. that's where it's going to end. Yeah. You know, I'm going to wake up the next morning and think, well, you know, got dealt a bad hand, but life goes on. And maybe you know, some, you know. By some miracle, your bad hand changes into a good hand. Yeah. I mean, you know, how bad can it be finding that out? I mean, hey, at least you're related, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so Brittany, why don't you take us into uh, Mr. DeSalvo's young adulthood? Oh, my goodness. So he enlisted in the Army after completing his sentence uh, that he got. Now, what was that first one he got was the theft and battery, right? And he got paroled a couple of years later, but went back again, like Correct. you said, and stole a car. Yeah. So he ended up going in the army after completing that last sentence and got honorably discharged, married a woman that he met in Germany when he was in the army and they had a son and a daughter. The daughter allegedly had some physical limitations, which I'm not really sure what those were because they didn't talk too much about it in any of the documentaries or films that I saw. Um, but then he went on and he became something else. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm going to tell you the story of the measuring man. But, you know, that's another thing, though, about these uh, serial killers. This guy, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a family man with a wife and two kids. And you talk right. about BTK, uh, Dennis Rader, lived at home with his, with his wife, and I think he had one or two kids. Gary Ridgway, the Green, Green River Killer, was married for years to yeah. the same woman. You know, family man, had a 30-year job. I mean, every semblance of normalcy you could possibly exhibit. But, they, you know, I mean... Some people have hobbies, you know, gardening, golf, and these other ones just go and kill people, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, went to the measuring man. So DeSalvo, uh, as a young man, he poses as a talent scout named Johnson. Man, that isn't that appropriate? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> from a modeling agency. And he knocks, he knocks on the door, tells the woman that uh, she's been referred to the agency if she measured up, literally, right? And right. Uh, she may be offering, maybe offered a job as a model paying 40 bucks an hour. You know, I normally would do the, the inflation calculation, but I got to believe 40 bucks an hour in like the early 60s has to be close to 500 bucks an hour now. So we're talking some good money. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in the day. I mean, you're talking gas was 19 cents a gallon. You could buy a new car for like a thousand bucks. So yeah, that was, that was good jack. 
and yep. uh, very good money. And um, he literally would take their measurements and record them. I guess he had a little notebook there. He assured them that uh, if they were accepted, they'd be receiving a call from Mrs. Lewis at the agency. And Mrs. Lewis was the equivalent of the, the anonymous general manager on Monday Night Raw. They just they existed in the figments of somebody's imagination. And right. uh, of course, no calls ever came since there was no Mrs. Lewis nor an agency. And now several women actually called the cops. So yeah. on uh, March 17th, 1961, uh, DeSalvo was uh, arrested attempting to break into a house. So he he was, I think he had a, a, a secret desire, and not even a secret desire for, for fame because he not only confessed to the robbery, but he did confess to being the measuring man as well. And he already had a the arrest record for breaking and entering. Um, he lived in Malden. Now, is that close to Boston? Oh, yeah. It's right, it's right north of Boston. Um, and it's actually where Killa Kowalski had his wrestling school. Oh, that's where you clipped that homeless guy, right? We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> oh, we're, we're talking true crime. I mean, we might as well bring it up, right? <laughs> so, I mean, again, the so, semblance of a normal man. His occupation was listed as a press operator for a rubber factory. So he, he has an alias named Johnson and worked for a rubber factory. I mean, you, you can't make this right. shit up, right? right. Um, he was sentenced to 18 months and was released in uh, April of 1962. Yep. Now, Brittany, you and I talked about this offline. This, this date is very significant because it's two months before the, the first murder by the Boston Strangler. That's if, right. If, if DeSalvo... It was released in August of 62. We wouldn't be having this podcast. Exactly. We'd be, we'd be talking about somebody else, but just, you know, coincidence? I, I think not. But, uh, you know, he gets released in April, and uh, within two months, we start having these these uh, these horrible killings all over Boston. So why don't you tell us about those? Yeah. So the first one was Anna, and I don't know how to say this, I think Slessers. Slessers. And she's a seams, she was a uh, seamstress, oddly enough. Uh, she was 55 years old. Her body was discovered on June 14th, 1962 at 77 Gainsborough Street in Boston. She was the first one that was identified as being murdered by the Boston Strangler. Okay, and then we go on to Nina Nichols, a retired physiotherapist, 68 years old. Just a few days later, a couple weeks later, June 30th, yeah, 19, yeah. Yeah, 1962 at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Not far at all from where the first one was. Found. I was going to not to interrupt Brittany, but like being a, a Bostonian, do any of these addresses sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. Commonwealth Ave is, is huge. Okay. I mean, that is a very well-known uh, street and a uh, lot of businesses there now. You know, it's it's very, very well-known. Now, other than Commonwealth Ave, um, there there is a couple other. Yeah, there are two or three other ones that are very well-known streets um, and go for miles and miles and miles. Uh so the next one, now this is a street I've never heard of, but it also wasn't in Boston. It was outside of Boston in Lynn, Massachusetts. And it was a 65-year-old nurse by the name of Helen Blake. 
found on the exact same day as Nina Nichols. Okay. So now we've got three people. The first one was in her 50s. The second one, 68. The third one, 65. Okay. Three people so far killed by... In 16 days. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And just two months after Albert DeSalvo was released. Right. Okay. That's something to keep in, you know, keep in mind all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then we go on um, a couple of months almost to Ida Erga, 75 years old, found on August 19th, 1962 in Boston, Mass. at Seven Grove Street. And just two days later, a 67-year-old woman by the name of Jane Sullivan was found at 435 Columbia Road in Boston. Columbia Road is also a very well-known street. Then we go on. Now, this is when things change a little because we have kind of a pattern with yes. 50s, 60s, 70s, right? This is when things change, and it's a few months later. December 5th, 1962, at 315 Huntington Ave, a very well-known street, a medical tech student, Sophie Clark, 20 years old, and this is the first body with a presence of semen. Funny how that works at 20 years old, huh? Right. As compared to the other ones. So then we go on just about three weeks later on New Year's Eve day, Patricia Bissett, age 23, on December 31st, 1962, 515 Park Drive, Boston. And then we've got four more. We've got Beverly Samens, an opera singer, who was the first victim to ever be stabbed. 23 years old, found in 1963, so five months later, May 6th, for University Road, Cambridge, Mass., right outside of Boston. Cambridge is where Harvard University is. Okay. And we've got, now we're switching back to, in the 50-year-old the era here, Evelyn Corbin, 57 years old, found September 8th, 1963, 224 Lafayette Street in Salem, which is not far from Lynn, which we've had one at already. So he's, he's keeping to a fairly close proximity then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And then we go on to Joanne Graff, who is a Sunday school teacher and 23 years old, found on November 23rd, 1963 at 54 Essex Street in Lawrence, which well, is- yeah, I, have to, I have to real quick interrupt you and I apologize because when I, and I remember this now when I saw the documentary that I saw about DeSalvo, that this date is very significant because it's the day after JFK was assassinated. And I really think that that's not just a coincidence because I do believe that DeSalvo was so hell bent on being famous Yep. That he thought, okay, well, the president got shot. I'm, I'm going to outdo it. And uh, that was his attempt at doing that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you're absolutely right. Yep. A hundred percent. And that was in Lawrence, Mass., which is right near all the rest of these. Lynn, Lawrence, Salem, 
uh, Cambridge, Boston. And then our final person, sadly, at the age of 19 is Mary Sullivan, January 4th, 1964, at 44A Charles Street, Boston. And one thing about her that is wasn't known, obviously, back when this happened is she is the aunt of a very well-known author by the name of Casey Sherman. Yes, yes. And she would have been his aunt. Um, obviously, he never got to meet her, but he was so, um, you know, upset with this story. This is what started him on becoming a true crime novelist. And I just got his book, Helltown, so I'm going to be reading that. Um, but I definitely want to get his book that he wrote about this, the investigation of his aunt's yes. murder, because this was absolutely unbelievable. And, and you know, what a thing to come out of it. A, a really best-selling author who started because his aunt was the final victim of the Boston Strangler. Right. Imagine that. Unreal. Yeah, he pretty much devoted his life to, yes. you know, number one, to analyzing the, you know, the, the Boston Strangler crime, but then also, you know, with true crime in general. Yeah, definitely. And I believe he just, um, he was very, very much involved in the, the play that just came out about Whitey Bulger. It was a one night only. In oh, Boston. okay. Yeah, I was so mad that I couldn't get tickets. I wanted to go so bad, but they were sold out the same day I found out about it. Okay. But anyways, yeah, so I hope to meet him. And, um, you know, we're friends on Facebook, but I haven't met him personally. I would like to do that. But uh, so uh, initially. Jimmy, I got to take a dump. What? No. I mean, I need a dumpster. <sighs> well... For all those needs, you need to call Big V Dumpster Rental, Long Island, New York, 631-900-DUMP. Hmm. My good friend, the player, the Boston police did not think the crimes were related. And it was Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole, who were two investigative reporters for, for the Boston Record American, which is now now the Herald, it became the Herald American, then it just became the Boston Herald, which it is now still, but it was called the Record American back then. And they thought the cases were related and they dubbed the killer the Boston Strangler. So no instances of forced entry. Amazingly for a year and a half, these women continued to let DeSalvo in, which floors me despite all the hoopla that was going around in the news and the newspapers at the time, that's all we had back then. Um, absolutely unbelievable that these people still answered their door and allowed him in. And, you know, thank you for, you know, being a, a lifelong Bostonian, shedding some light on, on some of these roads that, that, you know, these people were found on, because it sounds like they're not like, you know, back of the woods kind of, they're pretty much main thoroughfares. And so here's a guy in broad daylight that is, you know, somehow gaining entry into like, I mean, he's right in public view. Um, and, and he's, I mean, time after time after time, no matter what, I mean, pe these people, 
you know, back then people read the newspaper. Now it's kind of, I mean, I can't tell you the last time I might buy one at the airport because I like the crossword puzzles, but yeah, right. I mean, I haven't read a paper in years, but I mean, that was the main, that and, and the TV news was the main mode of, of, you know, communicating information. And so how is a, like a woman and, you know, either old or young, because, it, you know, he switched, uh, switched age, uh, uh, classifications there, assuming it's the same guy, but I mean, no matter what, I mean, you're a woman back then, you, you have a target on your back. I mean, how, how on earth, and, and I'm sure the papers reported that there were no signs of forced entry. Yeah. How do you, how does this guy, I mean, he had to be one heck of a charmer to, to, you know, gain access into these people's homes time after time, you know, right in broad daylight. I mean, I just don't understand it. I, I'm a single woman and I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't even answer the doorbell and I don't even have one of those peepholes. I wouldn't even answer the doorbell. If I didn't know somebody was coming to my house, if somebody didn't call me first and in, and nowadays, of course, text or whatever, I'm not gonna go to the door because it's not somebody that I wanna see. And I mean, peepholes were a big thing back then. You look through the peephole, you see this guy, you don't know him. Why in God's name would you answer? Right. And, like, and given everything that's happened before that, you know, and yeah, it was front page headlines. But, you know, the other thing I thought of is could this I, I, I don't believe this could have happened today because you have every Tom, Dick and Harry and Jane uh, walk in the streets with a cell phone. Now, when you have a cell phone. In my opinion, you become an instant reporter because your cell phone has a camera that is capable of recording video. And you have the, the capability, if you know anything about your phone, of transmitting it to anywhere in the world. So you have, you know, thousands and thousands of roving reporters walking yeah. the streets where back in DeSalvo's time. And it was, it's only, I mean, it, 60 years ago sounds like a lot, but in the overall scheme of things, it's really not that long ago that we, the only method of communication was, you know, your newspaper and your, your nightly news. So I, I don't think that this could have happened today. No, I don't see how it would have, especially with like ring cameras and stuff. People can see who it is now. They don't even have to leave their couch. They look at their phone, they see who it is. I don't know this guy, I'm not answering it. You know, right. and, and plus people are so hip to, stuff now who's gonna fall for let me measure you come on right. no way not it's, now it's in-person spam <laughs> i love it's it spam knocking on your door right right junk junk mail right yeah go away uh so now i am going to hop right into what i call strangle mania yeah. Uh, Got to work in those wrestling terms, right? So yeah. at the time, the Massachusetts Attorney General, uh, his name was Edmund, Edward Burke. He takes takes the case over and he puts Assistant Attorney General uh, John Bottomley, uh, who has absolutely zero uh, b uh, background in police work in charge, which I, I, I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah. I believe the man went to either Harvard or Yale or one of the Ivy League school. Brilliant guy. But... Um, this is a very interesting thing, Brittany, and I'd like to, like to hear your take on this. The police rounded up gays, lesbians, priests, and nuns, thinking that for whatever reason, they would be inclined to commit these heinous crimes. What, what, I can't even, and I, I have a very vivid imagination. 
I can't even begin to think what the thought process here was. I'm very confused by that myself. Um, first of all, uh, now, I was born in the early 60s. I was born, uh, I believe, about two months after the last one. Okay, so this was all, I never saw the papers, obviously, because I'm not, you know, one and two and three and four reading the newspaper, and it was gone by the time I started reading the newspaper. So, but I do remember one thing from the 60s and the 70s, at least where I lived, is there were no out gays and lesbians. So how did they identify these people back then? That's a very good point. I mean, I yeah, the priests and nuns, I get that. That's yeah. the, those they're they're wearing their stuff. But yeah, I mean, in in, in 1964, the you were not, I mean, everybody was in the closet. I would think. absolutely. I don't get it. I like where did they get these people? And like did, I mean, do the police really have the right to go ring someone's doorbell and go, "Hey, we heard you were gay. Are you?" I, I'm so I, confused I, by that. Can you imagine if that happened today? <gasps> nope. I nope. I can only imagine how quickly the police department would be not not defunded. They 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 would be out of money because they'd be you know having to live in shit suit out of them by everybody. But yeah. it just I found that very interesting, and I didn't even think about what you just said though. I I thought the whole thing was odd, but yeah, I mean totally. How I mean how would they know? Like, was there a list of gay people? <laughs> I mean, did they have like a police squad? Like here are gay people. Go go knock on. I just that part I don't get. Yeah, I don't get it, and like. Because it was so in the closet back then, who's going to even admit it, especially to a police officer? And but I, like you said, I don't get the thought process behind it. So, so you're going to say because of somebody's sexual preference, or because they belong to the church as a priest and a nun, that they're going out and strangling women with pantyhose around their neck? Right. I'm. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was pretty bad police work, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I that, but I mean, I guess they were desperate, and desperate people do that desperate thing. Things <laughs> now, um, dogs were adopted. They showed a picture of of the of the kennels, and um, the the uh, the local kennels had empty cages because yeah, every you know every stray dog was adopted by women to you know possibly. Maybe, you know, give them an alert. But I mean, would that really matter? Because, look, it, I mean, no matter what, these these women just let this guy in. And if women started rooming with each other, uh, lock sales soared. And I mean, just I mean, people were taking precautions, but 13 women still let this guy in their house. And yeah. I mean, after the first three, I mean, just my opinion, the other 10 should have known better. I mean, and that was another thing I was going to bring up is that we... We're not dealing, I mean, let me go back to my notes here. Uh, some of the occupations, you got, uh, you have a nurse, you have a seamstress, you have an opera singer, you have a, a retired physiotherapist, you have a Sunday school teacher. Yeah. Um, now, of several of the famous serial killers preyed on prostitutes. Yeah. And, you know, the thought process with them was that, 
nobody's really going to be looking for them anyway because they've already run away from home and this, you know their family either wrote them off or had very little to do with them. But um, you know these are professional women. These are educated. These are you know the uh, the first young lady that that got murdered, Sophie Clark, was a a medical tech student. Yeah. Um, so I mean we're dealing with professional women here, and uh, so he. These are people that that were they had the first uh, woman I think was found by her son. Yeah. These people had families. They, they you know they they were in constant communication. Now of course you know communication back then isn't as easy as communication now. Right. Uh, but you know nonetheless these are people who had families. So I just I mean it it's so to me it's so bold and daring that it defies logic. Would you agree or? I do agree. But what we have to remember with this man and, and even his own family said this on television, that he wanted to be famous. So why would somebody that wants to kill people kill prostitutes because they're not going to be missed, so to speak? When these people are all going to be missed, they're all, you know, the sun comes over, you know, six hours after it happens or the next morning or two hours later. These are all people that, yeah, we got to go check them out because they're not answering the phone. Exactly. And that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. That's why he didn't pick those other people that some famous or infamous murderers pick. That's the conclusion I came to. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. So just like The Undertaker, I believe before The Undertaker was The Undertaker, I think he was Texas Red yeah. at one point. He was Mean Mark. I yep. think he was maybe The Punisher. <laughs> he, he had a few gimmicks. So now you go from The Measuring Man to The Boston Strangler uh, to The Green Man. So, Brittany, tell our, tell our listeners about The Green Man. Yeah, the green man. So, so yeah, the killings, uh, they stop. They just completely stop. But there's a huge outbreak of rape in several New England states. He's arrested, DeSalvo, in November of 64 after an October 27th sexual assault in Boston. He's released, but then arrested again at his own house where he lives with his family as there were reports coming in from Connecticut that there was a series of sexual assaults there. They call him the green man as he often wore his green work pants. So he's sent to Bridgewater State Mental Hospital for observation. I can't think of a better place where he should have gone. And the green man becomes the strangler. He is in Bridgewater. He meets uh, another person, another inmate, so to speak, there by the name of George Nasser, who is there for murder. Nasser is represented by a young attorney, not as well known as he finally became, F. Lee Bailey, who happened to live one town away from me in Marshfield, Massachusetts. And when he heard about DeSalvo, he agrees to represent him. So he confesses with the stipulation that these confessions will not be used to incriminate him in the strangler murders. 
DeSalvo adds two additional victims to the original 11. Although some details were off, he recalled many details that only the police or the murderer would have known. Bottomley, as well as the DAs, all the DAs involved, because there were so many states and, and cities involved, are all convinced that he is the Boston Strangler. The psychiatrist at Bridgewater State, Dr. Ames Roby, did not think that DeSalvo was capable of being the Boston Strangler. There was no physical evidence connecting DeSalvo to these murders at this time. Wow. Unbelievable. You know, when, when you uh, went through all that, two things actually came to, to the forefront of my head here. One is that at that time, Epley Bailey was a relatively unknown attorney. Right. And this is what put him on the map. And then you know, 30 years later, he shows up as part of the dream team with O.J. Simpson. Yeah. I mean, it's two of the most famous cases in the history of the United States. And he, he's a part of both of them. And, and the other thing is when you mentioned that he was arrested at home, uh, DeSavo, the, the, from what I understand, his wife was not the least bit surprised, which is kind of, I mean, obviously she knew he was up to something. She just didn't know what, but she was not, I mean, and he was horrified. He did not want to be arrested at home, but yes. it, thinking that he might, you know, his wife might find out, I think she already knew something was up. Women are too smart. Yeah, I totally agree. But, but being a woman, I can tell you, if I found out my husband or the person I lived with was a rapist or a murderer, I'll see ya, see ya. And I think that's what she ended up doing once she found out what was going on. Right. M&J Video Games and Collectibles. Sport and non-sport cards, wrestling items, autographed items. We buy, sell, and trade. M&J Video Games and Collectibles, located at... 1049 Queen Street, Southington, Connecticut. Call us at 1-860-479-9223 or 860-93-GAMES. M&J, video games and collectibles. Do you treat your dog as part of the family? <laughs> well, so do we. So why not celebrate your pup's birthday with the ultimate party box? Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Party Pup Info, and let us make your pup's party or any celebration perfection. Yep. All righty, so now I'm going to talk about the, because it's, it, the one thing we need to note is that Sal, DeSalvo is never actually uh, convicted or accused of, tried for, or convicted of the stranglings. He was on trial for the uh, the murder, I'm not saying the murders, but the uh, the the uh, Green Man rapes. There was, I believe, four of them. And now Bailey attempted to use the confessions, uh, even though they were made with the uh, agreement that they would not be used in court. He did try to bring them into into the courtroom in this trial to, uh, in order for DeSalvo to be declared not guilty by reason of insanity. And the reason why he did that, and I think. I, I think it was more, and this is my my personal opinion, is that he did want this man to be analyzed because maybe if it with you know intense psychotherapy, 
maybe they would figure out what made the man tick. And uh, but I mean, then again, what are they going to get down to? They're going to get down to the root cause that the man came from a horrible household. Right. And I just think that no matter what, I mean, can can maybe these things be prevented? I would say to a certain extent, yes. But you, you never really know. I mean, like you said before, many people came from households like the Salvos. Yeah. But, but the other ones didn't kill people. Right. So they only claim that uh, now this is this is absolutely I barely claimed that the Salvo raped four, five women in four states in one day and was home by five o'clock. You know, That's crazy. I, I hold a woman's hand and I have to take a nap. So, I mean, I. <laughs> um, so, any now here's this had to be scary. Uh, he escaped from the from Bridgewater on February 24th, 1967. Uh, can you imagine? The panic that went through Boston when, when you know, the public found out that this guy is on the loose. Oh, my God. I would have been horrified had I not been three. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I would do if I lived as close as I did then to this. Um, I mean, I was 30 miles south of Boston. I don't know what I would do. If I was a grown woman living alone, honestly, go live in a hotel where at least, you know, they can't get in. Right. Is just out of curiosity, Brittany, is is Bridgewater still there? Yes. Is it still the same thing? Is it still a. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It is. Wow. Well, fortunately, uh, he uh, turned himself and he called that Lee Bailey, said, I want to turn myself in. And uh, Bailey, I guess, called the police and uh, had him arrested. But now at this point, instead of being at uh, Bridgewater, he gets transferred to MCI Walpole uh, Maximum Security Prison. Now, where is that, Walpole? Is that fairly close as well? Uh, yes, actually. And it's close to where I live now. I'm, I'm less than a half hour away from Walpole. Walpole is the next town uh, from Foxborough where the Patriots play. And that's not even a half an hour from my house where I live now. Okay. Um, so it's about eh, maybe 20 miles south of Boston. Um, and Walpole is a tough, tough prison and is still there today. And it's still known as one of the toughest. I would imagine the, the, his environment at Bridgewater had to be a million times more pleasant than Walpole. Uh, I would think so. I would think so. <laughs> well, on now this is very, very interesting. On, on November 25th, 1973, DeSalvo from Walpole calls uh, Dr. Ames Roby, who is his uh, psychologist um, in uh, Bridgewater, to schedule a meeting with him. But the very next morning, he's found murdered in his bed, drugged and murdered. So... I, I wanted to get your take on this as well, because I, I'm sure the police knew. I, this is my opinion. Now, do I, we'll, we'll get into who we thought did it, but I, I think that in, in the mind of the Boston police, that this was all buttoned up and, you know, case right. closed. I, I, I somehow think that 
somebody was afraid that this guy was going to, they, they at least perceived that he was going to leak out information that might leave some doubt as to whether or not he was the strangler. And I they agree. absolutely did not want that to happen. I agree 100%. Because how much, I mean, what a coincidence. The guy is, he's been in jail for almost seven years. Yeah. Uh, and and um, well, actually longer than that. I mean, but he's been at Walpole for seven and a half years. All of a sudden, he wants to meet with a psychologist. He has something to tell him. And now everybody's panicking. What is this guy going to say? Next thing you know, the guy's dead. Yeah. Drugged and murdered. Imagine right. that. Yeah. I mean, if he had a heart attack or, you know, something like that, or, you know, died in his sleep of natural causes. But, you know, yeah. I, I would say he died in natural causes because if somebody sticks a knife in your heart nine times, you're naturally going to die, right? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but, well, uh, as, as we say in wrestling, Brittany, it's time to go home. So take us into the aftermath. <laughs> yeah. So th this Boston Strangler controversy has haunted the nation for over 60 years, which is my whole life. Um, however, and th these are some of the things that a, a lot of people don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people that still talk about this case and they are not aware of what I'm going to say next. So uh, a 2001 DNA sampling of DeSalvo's brother did not match the DNA found on Mary Sullivan. So in 2013, DeSalvo, so that's just 10 years ago, he was exhumed and his DNA was confirmed to be an absolute match. Now, not only was he exhumed, but his nephew also agreed to be swabbed to be a familial match. And it, it came out that it was right. 100%. It was him. Imagine that. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, you know, people still think, oh, geez, you know, I wonder if he really did it. Well, we know he did one. Uh, so, you know, we've got positive proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that he killed Mary Sullivan. So one thing that cannot be disputed is, and, and like you and I both said when we've talked about this, is that these these all happened. The killings did not start until he was released from prison after the measuring man crimes, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, they didn't start for two months. Yeah, they didn't start for two months. And then they stopped as soon as his arrest happened for the green man crimes. Right. I mean, come on. And you know what I'd like to know, and I think it it is all because of, I believe his semen was only at that location. So there's nothing, there's nothing more that they can test from any other location. Right. That's what I want to know. I think that I think there's more to us than we know. That's just my opinion. I think so too. I think so, so too. So, Brittany, here's here's when we give our uh, ruling, and I'm at ladies first. So, are you, are you Albert DeSavo guilty or not guilty? I say guilty. I say guilty. Yeah, okay. he wanted to be famous, and then and 
he became infamous. So, you know, he got what he wanted. I, I think he did it. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, and like you just said, you know, the timeline, it, it, it lays perfectly. I mean, he was not, it, once he got released from the, uh, from prison for the measuring man crimes, two months later, the strangling start. Once yep. he got arrested for the green man crimes, the, the stranglings all stopped. Yeah. And I think that's just too much of a coincidence. Um, yeah. And the very fact that people said, well, maybe there was a copycat. I, I, I maybe there was, but we do not. He's at least one of the Boston Stranglers. Absolutely. And now his psychologist, uh, Ames Roby, thought he was not capable of being the strangler. I mean, psychologists are wrong sometimes. He obviously made that was able to make that leap from uh, thief to rapist to murderer. There's yeah. no disputing that now. So in, in my mind, and, and you know, another uh, controversy is that he forgot details of some of the murders. Well, right. I mean, okay, if you, 13 murders, I would think that it would be natural that you're not going to remember all the details. No, I totally agree with you. I you're totally going to remember, I mean, there, according to F. Lee Bailey, there were things that the Salvo told the police that only the police or the murderer would know. Right. And, and some things, I mean, the, the amount of detail that he provided, I think there was one, I, I don't want to be gross here, there was one woman that he actually removed the tampon and put it under the chair. Ugh. And he recounted that detail. Now, nobody, that was not released in any newspaper or anything. Only the police knew that. And DeSalvo knew that. How, how would he know that? Yeah. Unless he was there. Just, and like I said, the human memory, you know, it, it is very good, but it is subject to error. And of I mean, if he, if he murdered one woman, I would think he could tell every detail right down to the, you know, the next eyebrow. Sure. But when you're doing this 13 times in a year and a half, you're no matter what, you're going to get some some of it wrong. You're gonna, you know, you're going to mess up some of the details. But the over, I mean, Bottomley, who was the you know the the lead on the case, yep. he thought that uh, he was the strangler. All the DAs involved, the local DAs, yep. thought he was. Bailey thought he was. The attorney yep. general thought he was. Edmund Burke or Edward Burke, rather. Yep. Um, I some people think it might have been Nasser. But I believe with Nasser, uh, he was in Brook, um, Bridgewater for murder. I don't think the timeline fits. I think he was he was in jail when some of these murders happened. So I, I, I don't agree. I mean, was he capable of it? Yes. But, you know, Nasser, his history was more on the theft side. I mean, he right. killed somebody in the course of a robbery. Right. The Salvo, his crimes, a lot of his later crimes, not so much as a youth, most of his crimes in adulthood were of a sexual nature. Absolutely. So I'd be way more inclined to believe that that he was as opposed to Nasser. But I, if I had to bet money, I would bet money that he did he did them all. I mean, they're saying copycat, but um, the the ligatures that were found on the women were identical. Absolutely. Um, now the only question is, uh, as far as the the age group. And, you know, now you go from like maybe three, what, four women who were 50 plus. And it, it, we, you mentioned about there was two other victims. One of them was 85 years old. And I believe she actually died of a heart attack when he, yes. you know, I don't think he even had it till. I think she just 
she did she did him the favor but i guess they you know they affixed that murder murder to the strangler um so yeah i i i don't see i i just think as far as why he switched to the younger women maybe it was just a way to his way of his thought process of trying to throw the police off the track that's what i think i mean i i to me that it, I mean, come on. And and plus, we don't know. I mean, do we know whether or not he he raped those older women? I mean, I know that he put things in them. Yes. Uh, not to be gross, but we know this, right? Yes. But he put himself in them. I'm thinking he did not. But he did the younger women. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the fact with uh, what's her name, uh, Sophie Clark. Uh, let me let me go back and look here. Yeah, uh, Sophie Clark. That that was the first. She's the twenty year old. The yeah. first pre uh, presence of scene in any any of the scenes. Um, right. I I think that at at this point, I mean, you're dealing with, and maybe uh, because DeSalvo, I think, was about thirty at this time. Maybe the other women weren't really appealing to him, and he did it more as a, you know, just a control thing and a violence thing. Although there was there were sexual assaults, but maybe you know once he switched to the younger women, then now these are women in his age group, and they were a little bit maybe more desirable to him. I don't know. You know, we we, we made the disclaimer that we're not psychologists, and it's very very obvious that we're not. But I mean, we're we're intelligent people, and we have opinions, right? Right. And I mean, I'm hoping that people listen to this and formulate their own opinions on it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th this is just a fascinating, fascinating case that was so big in the 60s and had people so horrified and terrified. And I mean, like you said earlier, when he escaped from Bridgewater, I just cannot even imagine. I, I so wish that I was 25 then so that I could have remembered what was going on in Massachusetts at that time. Right. You know, unbelievable. And, you know, ironically, one of the things he wanted the most was fame. Exactly. And I mean, for the last 50 years, people have been talking about this guy. So I guess posthumously he got his wish, right? He did. Because what? 60 years later, here are you and I. Right. Right. 60 years later. And he is our first true crime podcast. Right. And hopefully not to be the last. What did you think? Did you enjoy this? Loved it. Loved it. We, we both have a passion for true crime. And one thing that's for sure, there is no shortage of cases to be <laughs> analyzed. We, we could be doing this to this young pup here who's 18 months. I forgot to introduce Bray. The three Bs, Brittany, Benny, and Bray. <laughs> she was very, very good. She was. Uh, and, uh, but we, we could be doing this till she's my age. Yeah, hey. You know, my guy over here is nine, sound asleep right now. I, I don't know how, but. Uh, I mean, listen, not... this is interesting. He should have been awake for this. You know. Well, she was napping too, though, I have to admit. <laughs> well you know i'm surprised i guess he's not a true crime dog i guess you know yes. Jeez. 
He, he stays awake for the wrestling podcast, but he doesn't stay awake for true crime. Amazing. Well, he's not named McGruff, right? Wasn't he the true crime dog? That's right. Yeah, his name is Archibald Paddington. Okay, he's got a first and a last name. Well, a first and a middle. And oh, that's, that's his, okay. He's got my last name, so yeah, he's he's APB, right? Like an all uh, all points bulletin. So yeah. he's even got a true crime. He's got true crime initials. <laughs> He does. I love it. <laughs> Bree's got mine. She's Bree Scalis. She's BS, just like me. BS. I love it. It's not just initials. It's a way of life. That's right. We got the BS and the APB over here. All right. It sounds like a winner. So uh, for the uh, <laughs> the player and for the, the bad girl, Brittany, say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Benny and Bree. All right. So we'll see you guys, I, I want to say next week, but I have to say, uh, and Brittany can agree, there was a lot of work to put this together. I mean, wrestling, we can both talk from now until the cows come home without a script, you know, without any prompts. This is something that, and we wanted to make sure we got a lot of this right. Even though we made the disclaimers, we wanted to make sure that we presented accurate information so yep. that you could make a decision on your own. So it might take a little bit of time, but we're going to be back again. So for again, for the playa and for the bad girl, goodbye. Bye-bye.